Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to Episode 8, Tony Ventresca, An Extraordinary Man. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Mary Beth Borkowski about her father, who was a war hero, athlete, and an amazing dad. Welcome to the show, Mary Beth, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, James. Thank you for having me. Terrific. Well, why don't we get started? I just wanted to start by asking you about your dad's early years. Like, where was he born? Where was his family from? My father's family was from Italy. He was the son of immigrants. His grandparents came here with his mother and her brother, and they settled in Providence, Rhode Island. His father came down through Canada. He was sent over as a teenager. He was sent to Canada, and his parents told him this is the full extent of his parental instructions were, find your way to America. So when he landed in Canada, he worked, I guess, as an apprentice or helper at a lumberjack camp and worked his way down to Rhode Island, where he married my father's mother. They lived with her parents in Providence for a number of years. Her parents were not your typical immigrant situation in that they actually were well-to-do. Her father was a tailor and pretty successful at it. So my father remembered wearing very nice suits and sitting at the dining room table drinking wine on his grandfather's lap. They spoke only Italian at home. So my father had to learn English as a second language when he started school. At one point, my grandfather decided he would strike out on his own with his family, no longer live with his in-laws, and they moved to South Philadelphia. That's where life took a turn in a different direction. My grandfather got a job as a coal miner, so they moved to Pottsville, Pennsylvania, which was and still is a coal mining town. So life became tougher at that point. Did your grandfather have any regrets about making that move? No, my grandfather probably did not. He was the kind of man who was happy. He actually, he was going to be given a share in a very successful coal mining business in exchange for the work that he was doing. And he opted out of that, preferring the paycheck. He liked getting his paycheck on a Friday and spending some of it in the tap room. Got it. So probably not a great decision. So what year was your dad born? My father was born in 1921. That means he grew up during the Great Depression. Did he have any experiences from that that he shared with you? You know, it was funny because my dad put a spin on it and my mother as well. My parents could make anything a story and it was a funny story. Looking back on the stories that they told growing up, and I shared this at my mother's funeral, my parents and my brothers, I come from a family of storytellers. They would talk about things that happened and they would find the humor in the situation. So there was never any of that what we think of as that cliche, oh, during the Depression. They would talk about during the Depression, we did this, this, and this in a way that made it sound like, okay, those values were a good thing to have. They talked about the meals that they ate and that they made do with things. It it was just life. Not a lot of belly aching about what they did without. Got it. So kind of a glass half full sort of a thing. Yeah, definitely. So when your dad went to school, I understand he was very athletic. Can you tell us about that? Yes, my father was a gifted athlete. He excelled at football more than anything. He was a big man on campus. There was a cartoon in the local paper, and it was two women in the grocery store. One woman has her cart loaded with cereal boxes. The advertisement said that if my son eats the cereal, he'll make touchdowns like Tony Ventresca. (laughs) 
Yeah, so he got a little bit of a, an ego from that. They recruited him for the basketball team, and then he was kicked off the basketball team because he was a very aggressive, and the coach said, we don't tackle in basketball. So, <laughs> so he was happy in his schooling, very comfortable in his skin. Besides being an athlete, he also loved to sing in the choral groups and the a cappella groups. And my father was he was your typical man's man, barrel-chested, tattooed, coal miner, football player, marine. But some of my earliest memories are my father reading me poetry as a child. Those are great memories. So these achievements that he made, did he have any aspirations in high school of going further in his athletic career? I think that was something that was almost a given at that point, because fortunately for him, as his family did not have the money to send him to school. Fortunately for him, he was given a free ride to Wake Forest. And I guess this wasn't unusual in those days. He would hitchhike back and forth to school. And he played football there starting his freshman year. Yeah, probably would have gone on to play pro ball. Freshman year, he was scouted by the Detroit Lions and was sent a letter inviting him to come to tryout. That's an accomplishment. It was, and he was proud of that, but he did not follow through on that because the attack on Pearl Harbor prompted him and three of his best buddies from town to go downtown and enlist in the Marines. In fact, the letter that he had from the Lions, which my brother has, the postmark on that letter is December 7th, 1941. Oh, wow. Wow. His new destiny was set at that point, I guess. It was sort of a two different destinies uh, merging yeah. together on one envelope. Yes. Wow. And we, growing up, we would say, oh, too bad you didn't take that. We think about what our lives would be like. Uh, but, you know, pro players didn't have the lives then that they have now. Wouldn't have married my mother. We wouldn't exist. So exactly. He would have played. His life may have been better, but ours wouldn't have existed. So Why the Marines, Mary Beth? He said the Marines had a reputation for being the best of the best. Got he it. felt after he was discharged. He often said that if he had it to do over again, he felt that at that time, the Navy had better options for their men. But he was very proud of having been a Marine. Oh, I bet he was. So when he obviously had a lot of war experiences, did he share some of those with you? When faced with anything difficult or traumatic, he wasn't one to dwell on those experiences. He made a lot of jokes about his time he was more lighthearted about it. He was stationed in Guadalcanal for a bit, lived in the jungle, actually. And that was a very tough time. But he talked about that very little and talked more about the time that he spent in New Zealand, where he played rugby. And that was not the intense war experience that he had in other areas. So he did talk about that more. He talked about getting his tattoos and taking his buddy for tattoos and that sort of thing. But there was one instance where it was one afternoon, my father was visiting and his habit was to put out a little snack in the afternoon, make a pot of coffee and sit and visit. That was my parents. When they visited, you visited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, just, you sat, you had your snacks, you had your coffee. And one day it was he and I at the table and he talked about how difficult it was and some of the things that were more traumatic that stayed with him and his time fighting hand-to-hand combat in the jungle. And he talked about that and he said, what difficult carrying some of his comrades who had been killed, Mm. carrying them out because he didn't want to leave them there and how difficult that was. And the other thing that he said, this will always stick with me. And 
what we would call the horrors of war. Mm. And he said, when you come across another kid, because they were kids, when you come across another kid in the jungle and it's hand-to-hand combat, you look in his eyes and he's scared and you're scared and you know that one of you is going to die now and you have to kill him. You don't want to kill the scared kid in front of you, but you have to because if you don't, he will kill you. Oh, boy. And... My father was obviously not a perfect man. My husband says, you elevate your father to sainthood. There's nobody on this earth who can be elevated to that. But he was a good and kind man always. And to think that my father did that as a kid, it makes me think about how much that must have informed the rest of his life. I think that must have been something that he compartmentalized and carried with him forever. I'm sure it did. Now, I understand that he was wounded. Yes. Can you tell us about that? He was on a ship to Tarawa, the Battle of Tarawa. They could not get close enough. He was on the Higgins boat. They look like giant dump trucks, like like the truck in Back to the Future that dumps the dirt mm-hmm. on this car. That's what they look like, except they were dumping kids into the ocean. They could not get close enough to shore to let them out safely. So the shorter men died. My father was not a tall man. The water was up to his neck. And as they were wading ashore, the Japanese were just drafting the water with their machine guns. But he was shot in the neck in water up to his chest. He said it was like getting hit in the neck with a baseball bat. He knew he'd been hit. And waiting for the medic to get to him in their boat was quite a while. And he said he kept fighting off the loss of consciousness. And he would demonstrate how he would just like shake his head to stay awake and tell himself, don't go under, don't go under, you have to stay awake. He knew that his life depended on staying above water until the medics could get to him. Oh my goodness. I think that perhaps his athleticism probably paid off at that time. I think it did. And he had a very strong will to live, which he demonstrated until the end of his life, extremely self-disciplined. He took great pride in that because, as I said, he didn't share a lot of the darker side, but he shared that often. And he took a lot of pride in having maybe taken some control and some responsibility for staying alive until he could get help and save the bullet. That was a point of pride to my dad. So what happened once uh, when he got picked up by the medics? What happened then to him? He was taken to, you know, and I I don't know the details of what happened immediately afterwards, but eventually he was in a hospital in Hawaii and medical advancements weren't what they are today. And so they actually were using gravity to treat him. He had to lie face down and they were hoping that gravity would move the bullet to the point where they could operate safely. So he spent a month in the hospital before they operated, which they eventually did under local anesthetic. And the doctor took my father's hand after he removed the bullet, put the bullet in my father's hand and said, here's a souvenir for you, son. He kept that bullet wrapped in a piece of gauze and kept it in the strong box. When we were growing up, whenever my father had to get some papers out of a strong box, we would run in and say, can we see the bullet? And he would let us write on paper with the lead from the bullet. Oh, gee. <laughs> I guess you're, it's still in the family, the bullet? I believe my brother has the letter and the bullet, yes. I understand there was a coincidence that happened with regard to his brother while he was in the hospital. This is very sad. Back in the day, letters took a long time to get to reach you. And, uh, you know, obviously they didn't have social media or any kind of instant communication. So he and his brothers, who also 
had enlisted. Uh, I think one brother was in the Navy and the other brother may have been in the Army. But he and his brothers hadn't seen one another for two years. And at one point, a nurse came into my father's room just as he was recovering from the surgery. And she said, Ventresca, are you any relation to a Nick Ventresca? And he said, yeah, I have a brother named Nick. They uh, deduced it was my father's brother was down the hall and had been for two weeks. And no one made the connection until that morning, which was two days after my uncle had been discharged. Oh, boy. So what a coincidence. They huh? had been in the same place for two weeks and no one had made the connection. So they missed actually seeing each other. Oh but yeah, God. quite the coincidence. And yeah. So after your dad recovered in the hospital, did he remain in the service? Was he discharged? What happened then? He was sent stateside. He was not discharged. He received the Purple Heart and he was transferred to Camp Lejeune where he was raised to the rank of corporal and he was a drill sergeant. Really makes me laugh because I don't know, my husband says that I'm the, probably the only person who thinks of him this way, but he was such a gentle person. I can't even imagine him as a drill sergeant, but apparently I'm the only one who thinks of him like that. And other people don't seem to have a problem with imagining him as a drill sergeant. <laughs> Now, I also understand that when your dad was wounded, that there was some sort of miscommunication home to his mother. Very, very sad story. His mother had a hard life, her husband. He was not a great husband. He was abusive towards his wife, but never towards his children. But she had a bit of a tough life. And she was in the hospital with hypertension and heart disease while all of her sons were in the service. She was only in her 40s, early 40s. When my father was wounded, she received a telegram in the hospital telling her that he had been killed in action. Ooh. They sent a retraction three weeks later and amended it to say that he had been wounded and that he had survived. But in that span of time, she had passed away. You know, and you can only wonder if that didn't hasten her death. And my father did not learn of his mother's death until he came home. Like that thing to have this wonderful homecoming and make his mother happy and his mother was no longer there. So that was another really tough time for him. Spoke of his mother, oh, with so much love and warmth, but he did not talk much about the hard time. You had mentioned your family tended to be glass half full. It's nice to know that your dad was able to look at things positively and the things, I guess, that were really tragic and sad, I kind of avoided it a little bit, probably just to stay more upbeat. Something that my father said, and his childhood, if it occurred today, he would have been removed from the home. I mean, at one point, his mother left, and he was in grade school. She had only a baby with her, and he and his other brother were at home, and his father couldn't take care of them, and he put them in a boarding house. Young grammar school age kids spent the summer living in some woman's attic and eating once a day. That's the kind of thing that you wouldn't want for a child. But when asked about these things, my father would say they did the best they could. His father was shipped here, basically. They put him on a boat and said, find a better life. And my father tried to be understanding about that and say, eh, what could they did the best they knew how. There was food on the table. They thought they were doing their best. He was an extremely forgiving man. Wow. Oh, I, I want to back up, Mary Beth, just a little bit. You had told me about a kind of a souvenir that your dad brought home from his time in the Marine Corps? Yes, this was in Guadalcanal. There was a downed plane, enemy plane. And during their downtime, you know, they had a lot of scary days in the jungle. And he took his knife and he carved a cross out of the windshield of that plane, which I still have. It's beautiful. Uh, mm -hmm. I just love it. And he, he carved that. It must have taken him quite some time to do. 
I've often heard soldiers who have kept diaries that were flipping back and forth between boredom and fear and stress. I think that's what it was. I think it was a seesaw between boredom and terror. Yeah, and the time to carve out a beautiful cross out of a windshield and then you're thrown into life and death, uh, hand-to-hand combat. It's a terrible back and forth, I'm sure. I'm so happy to have that. And one of my brothers has, as I said, the letter. I have the cross. And my other brother has my father's bugle that he had from the Marine Corps. He would blow the bugle at boot camp. So we all got something special to hold on to. That's great. So after the war, after the war ended, your dad was discharged from the Marines. What was his life like after that? Well, he came home, hometown hero. He was football hero and turned war hero. And at one point, he saw my mother. They were out at a bar or club or something with their respective friends. She would not date him in high school. She wouldn't give him the time of day in high school because she thought he had a big ego. And he had asked her out the family folklore. He pinned her against a locker and said, Mary Julian, you're the only girl in this school that doesn't want to go on a date with me. I want to know why. And she said, Tony Ventresca, I wouldn't date you if you were the last man on earth. <laughs> so following the war, and coincidentally, her father, very strict Italian man, had forbidden her to date boys from out of town. She could only date boys he knew. So she saw my father and thought, oh, daddy would be okay with Tony Ventresca. Mm-hmm. And she said, Tony Ventresca, so are you still in love with me? <laughs> they started dating. They married in 1940, in January of 1945, and my brother was born in November of that year. My father was still in Camp Lejeune at the time, and I have photographs. They would send one another photographs. They would write love letters on the back of them. And my parents were, were very demonstrative with their children. They were not overly demonstrative with one another. You know, I didn't see my parents. I think I saw them hold hands at once in my lifetime. The love was obvious. They adored one another. But the level of deeminess on these letters is just so surprising to me. But there's just, I will love you forever and always, my darling. I can't live without you. I mean, just the cliche letters home. And it's just the sweetest thing. Did you blush when you read them? Oh, my goodness. Yes. I have them in a frame that's glass on both sides so you can see the photos and the letters on the back. My father, again, another cliche, had morning sickness every day while my mother was pregnant. He had to go to the medic and the medic finally said to him, is your wife pregnant by any chance? It was a very sweet story that came out of that. Uh, Where did they end up settling? Well, they ended up back in Pottsville. My father, again, he could have gone back to college on the GI Bill. And my mother, she harbored some resentment that he didn't till the end of her life. His father had a lot of influence. And his father guilted him, said, you have a wife and child. And he got him a job in the coal mines. They had found a small apartment down in North Carolina. And the woman who was renting the room was just so thrilled to have a young couple and a baby moving in. And my mother was really excited to get out of town. My father was the first in his family to graduate high school, let alone go to college. And so was my mother. So they were very excited about this. And his father guilted him, got him a job in the mines, which was considered, quote unquote, good money at the time. Probably was good money, but not a good future. And he took the job because he wanted to support his family. How long did he work in the coal mines? 
he worked in the coal mines with the exception of a few years when they moved to New Jersey for a span of time, something like 18 years where he was also a heavy equipment operator. Then he did go back to the mine. So he basically worked at the mine for his entire life. He wasn't an underground miner. He was the operator at the electric dragline shovels, which were huge. They're the size of a typical four-bedroom home with a bucket that you could drive a dump truck into the bucket. Operators were in high demand. There weren't a lot of skilled operators. It was grueling work, very physically demanding, out in the elements year-round, blazing heat, bitter cold, worked through a hurricane once. So he worked in the mines basically his entire life. Was he home for dinner every night? Was he the kind of sit-around-the-dinner table guy? Was he Absolutely, absolutely. My parents had times of hardship, but we ate well. <laughs> that was very important. Italian family around the table. We would all sit down to dinner together every night. Remember, as soon as my parents would sit down, one of them would put the coffee on so that that would be perking while we ate. And then after dinner, my parents would sit and enjoy their coffee and unfortunately a cigarette uh, back in the day. We all sat around the table. One of the most surprising things to me is families that don't do that. I remember my husband's family when I first met him and I would go to his house and one sister would sit in the kitchen and eat while some of us were in the dining room and another one would sit in the bedroom. And I'm not criticizing them, but that was very different for me because my father would never have allowed someone not to sit at the table while we were eating. And that's something that we did with our children. Even when my husband was working late hours, I would just flip the script and they would do bath and homework before dinner so that we all sat together, even if he came home late. So that was something that we brought into our family as well. That was just the time to connect. And it wasn't that conversations were deeper meaningful. It was that being in the same place was meaningful. Oh, absolutely. And and Mary Beth, one of the reasons I'm even doing this podcast is to get people talking and telling stories and spending time. And I think when you had the time to just sit with your dad and your mom and, and hear stories and just be with them and share things that have happened in your day with each other and maybe what happened in the past and people who are who lived a long time ago. And that's one of the things I'm trying to encourage in my podcast. And I think the story about your dad just sort of is a great picture of that. That he, even though he's working hard all day, and I know your mom was too, that you're able to make it a point that everybody got together and ate around the table. And that's where the great storytelling happens. So when did your dad pass away? My father passed away in 1992. He had been sick for a few years. He was 71. He died of heart disease. He suffered at the end. His lungs were strong. His heart was weak. His lungs, because of the heart disease, were filled with fluid, but he never developed a black lung or emphysema. Mm. But how Having been diabetic, he very sadly died of heart disease at a young age. I'm sure you felt a big void after he was gone. Yes, my father made everyone feel safe. And my mother as well, because as I said, sitting around the table, there was a feeling of protection of circling the wagons. And my mother said, we shut the door. Doesn't matter what happens all day. You close the door, you're in with your family. And even until he died, my father, he was just the tough guy who made you feel safe. And like I said, he was forgiving about anything that happened to him personally. But he was extremely protective of my mother and my brothers and myself. He had grandchildren by the time he had passed away at that point. How was he as a grandfather? <laughs> he was the best grandfather. My parents, neither of them had great childhoods. You know, being the children of immigrants who had to work hard 
to put food on the table. That was their focus. So my parents, their focus was they were very lenient with us, but only in ways that didn't hurt us. They were lenient about like having fun. We didn't have a lot of chores. Kindness was where they drew the line. We were kind to each other. They wouldn't, they were things that they wouldn't have put up with bad behavior. But as far as like in the home, there was a lot of love and protection. So they really reveled in our childhood and playing with us and not a lot of chores, but a lot of playtime. When the grandchildren came along, just double that, triple that. It was just very, very devoted, very, very hands-on. And my father, for all of his, you know, he sounds like such a tough guy, and he liked to present a very tough exterior. But no one could soothe a crying baby like my father. If a baby was upset and crying, hand him to grandpa, and that baby will calm down because there's something about the way he held them, the way he sang to them. But he was very, very... My children are the youngest two of his eight grandchildren. And my son couldn't say grandpa. Uh, she said gop. So all of the kids call him grandpa. My kids called him goppy. And then in sensei school, they learned the concept of agape love. And they immediately made the connection and said, that's easy to remember because it sounds so much like goppy. And that agape giving love was exactly, that was exactly who he was. Wow. That leads me to my next question. How would you say your life has been impacted by your dad? Okay, this is, I was going to try and get through this without crying. You know, lately we've been watching The Crown and we watched Downton Abbey and I love those shows. And they often speak of when you're talking about different societies, different class structures, and people talk about air being an heir or an heiress. Even here in America, there's that attitude of an heir or an heiress. And I know that that implies that you were born into privilege and that you're inheriting something of great value. And I know that's usually, you know, they're referring to a monetary aspect Mm -hmm. of it. But that added concept of being born into privilege and inheriting something of value, I have never once heard the word heiress without feeling that it applies to me. I always hear that word and think of what my father and my mother imparted to us and that unconditional love, that protection, no matter what happens in this world, this can be a tough place to live. I always know my worth because of the family that I grew up in. My brothers and I and all of our children, we were well loved. And that's just that's just the greatest gift that I can think of and that we hope we've imparted to our children and that they will hand down to their children as well. That's so nice to hear that. That is really, really, that's a beautiful legacy, really. I was, I was going to ask this final question, actually, but I think you pretty much answered it. I was going to ask you, what do you think your dad would have wanted his legacy to be? I think that my dad was, at the time of his death, he did see this. We all remain close. And I think that each of us, all three of our families, I have two brothers, I think all three of our families, and now the families, most of his grandchildren, actually all of his grandchildren, have families of their own now. I think he was happy to see that. And since he's passed, and since my mother's death also, especially we remain close to one another. We become even closer, I think, in the intervening years since my mom passed. We share the same values, share the values that my parents instilled in us, and we pass them on to our children and to their children. I think his legacy is that family is everything. 
and that looking out for one another extends through the generations. So it's sort of a vertical and horizontal thing. And I think just having that love for one another and having it not diminish, but grow through the years, I believe that would have made him happier. If he could have seen into the future, I can't think of anything that would have pleased him more. That's the only thing that really mattered to him in life. Now he has three children, eight grandchildren, and all of his great-grandchildren, and the numbers keep rising. April 13th of 2021 will be the 100th anniversary of my father's birth. I had really wanted all of us to go to Italy to celebrate that. I thought it would be really fun for his kids and as many grandkids as could make it mm. to celebrate that in Italy. And obviously, 2020 threw a wrench in the works, and we won't be doing that. But we are looking forward to a celebration. And what makes this really special and speak to my father's legacy is that everyone in the family is excited and happy about this celebration. The aunts and uncles and cousins are all really excited because, God willing, the week of my father's birthday, his 15th great-grandchild is due to arrive. So thank you to my son and his wife for that wonderful consolation prize and special celebration to celebrate Grandpa's 100th anniversary of his birth. Oh, that is wonderful. That's terrific news. And what an amazing legacy for your dad to leave. I'm impacted. I never met your dad, but I'm impacted by his life. It's just amazing to his family and his country as well. So as we conclude this conversation, I just want to thank you, Mary Beth, for sharing this great story about your hero, Dad. I thank you, James, for this opportunity and I, your podcast to celebrate people living ordinary lives in an extraordinary way. And I think these ordinary people are just making contributions to society and to the world in general. And I just love that you're going to be celebrating these people. Yeah, there's so many stories to tell. I just, I'm just scratching the surface. There are so many people who either have lived through something or know somebody in their family that has lived through something incredible or just have been incredible people. I think there's so many stories out there to tell, and I'm looking forward to hearing more and more of them. I'm hoping that our listeners have enjoyed hearing about your dad's bravery and his dedication to his country and family. And again, I want to thank you very much, Mary Beth, for being on the show. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, James. My father was very special to me and, you know, one of my favorite subjects to talk about. Aside from my grandkids, I could go on forever about my father. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you again. And for everybody else, until next time, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. And have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.